Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Quirky Corporate Chicks podcast, where your hosts, Sherry Hayes and Dana Foster, corporate life coaches in private practice. We focus on people who follow their passion and how their lives have been impacted. Real stories and lots of laughter as we look at where life has taken us. And today, we are here with Dr. Sunita Puri. I'm so excited. She's the medical director and attending physician of palliative medicine at USC. And we are here to talk about her book, That Good Night, and also about her thoughts in general on palliative care. Welcome, Dr. Puri. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so let me just kick it off and get started. I first heard about you by reading uh, your article, The Lesson of Impermanence in the New York Times, which led me then to read your book. And I wanted to just start off with uh, your, in a, in a few words, in case our listeners aren't familiar with, what is palliative care and what is your definition of suffering? So palliative care is a newer subspecialty in medical practice that really attends to the physical, emotional, and spiritual struggles of patients who are facing a serious illness. Um, And a serious illness can be anything from an accident that has led you into organ failure in the ICU to having a new diagnosis of an advanced cancer. And in our field, we recognize that there are different domains of suffering that come with experiencing an illness like that, where the path ahead may be uncertain and how your quality of life may change may be uncertain as well. So our focus is really on preserving quality of life and doing so by attending to the different ways that people experience pain, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual. Interesting. And do you think that, um, now obviously you have your background Do you feel like, is that something, that type of teaching, if you will, is that something that's lacking from your training to date? And is there, are there specific classes or courses that even people could take to supplement that? I'm an MD, also a writer. And so um, I think that when we are trained in medicine, that's kind of what I can speak to. I can't really speak to doctorate training, Mm -hmm. but in medical training, we are not really focused as much on quality of life and experiences of suffering as we are on life extension and fixing problems. And I think that's where our specialty fills a huge and crucial gap is that we are focused on what is it like for people to live with illness. And it's not just about dying with illness, which I think is a stereotype attached to palliative care. It's much more about how we help people to live their best lives, however they may define that, um, when even though they're, they're dealing with a serious illness and its effects on them and on their family and on their lives. And so in terms of courses, I can't really speak to that, but I think that you know, suffering and death is all around us. And the more actively that we engage in understanding what suffering is and how we experience it, the more we can start to think ahead to what sort of quality of life we would want when we are in the throes of suffering ourselves. One of the quotes I have from you is uh, that life is impermanent, therefore so is suffering. Uh, I'm kind of paraphrasing that a bit. Um, This is a theme that comes up a lot on our podcast, especially with um, entrepreneurs and just people who are starting out about that, that when you're going through a rough time, um, you know, it's, it, there's always going to kind of be ebbs and flows in, in your life. How do, you, how do you think you learn to be comfortable with impermanence? 
So I was very lucky, and I write about this in the book, that I came from a home that was very deeply spiritual. Um, And right in the introduction to the book, I write about my conversations with my dad when I was very young about what it means for all of us to be impermanent beings. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're exposed to and immersed in that for so many years, you start to think about that more frequently. Um, And you start to encounter situations in your life where that might be filled with tremendous amounts of suffering. And you start to default to remembering that this too is impermanent. And I think a lot of spiritual traditions speak to that. In my spiritual tradition of Hinduism, you know, the, the fact of temporality is one of the founding principles of the religion, that how do we live amidst suffering? Buddhism talks about this as well. And I think in Christianity, the idea that this too shall pass is a very powerful statement because it really is speaking to no matter what you're going through, whether it is a joy or a hardship, it will pass nothing stays the same forever. And I think nature shows us that quite a bit, the turning of the seasons, the death of our pets, for example. And so I think it's something that's all around us. The question is, why don't we pay more attention to it? And I think we live in a culture in our country where we are really in denial about the natural turn of things, whether it be aging or death. um, I think these are not spiritual concepts that we are really attuned to pay attention to, perhaps until a crisis arises. And so what do you think could be if, let's say maybe a person wasn't super grounded in their spirituality, what would be one first step that they could take in either, you know, getting comfortable with this idea or even, even these kinds of topics? What would be one piece of advice you could give? I think that most people come to these concepts when the time is right for them. Mm -hmm. So I can tell people to read books or to look at the world around them, but they have to be open to receiving that sort of message. And in my experience, I think people come to it often in a time of crisis or in a time of contemplation. Mm. Sometimes those two are related and interlinked and sometimes they're not. But I think when people are going through change in their life, that's always a good time to sit back and to think about what change means. What has it meant to them before? What does it mean to them now? How do they buoy themselves through change? What's hard about doing that? Because essentially suffering is, in Buddhism at least, and I like this definition a lot, it's a resistance to what is. Mm -hmm. And when we resist rather than accept, which is a very hard thing to learn to do, then I think we're suffering for ourselves. But I think, you know, really life experience, looking towards the contemplative arts like meditation, even sitting and watching a flower open and close, that can be a very powerful lesson about what it means to change. What is the natural cycle of things? How does that apply to our own lives? And where is it difficult to accept that? Yeah, totally powerful. That was just beautiful. One of the quotes that I have from you, as well as you said, language is the best tool to help become a better doctor. Um, where do you think that the conversation needs to change in terms of healthcare? In terms of healthcare generally? No, I'm sorry, palliative care. Oh, okay. 
So, you know, I think that a lot of medicine essentially is palliative medicine because our main aim in medicine is to reduce suffering and increase quality of life. I think where we lose our way is that we have so many technological options now to keep people alive at all costs, and sometimes that comes at the cost of their quality of life. And I think where language and conversation is helpful and essential is helping people think through what what we can do for them medically versus what we should do for them given their goals of care and what they value the most and what they want for themselves. So it's very easy for me to put someone on a ventilator and dialysis in the ICU, but why would I do that if those measures are not going to return them to the quality of life they might want for themselves? And that's, I think, where there's a big gap in medical practice and in and it speaks to the importance of palliative medicine because we can put people through things that they may not realize are not going to help them meet their goals. So we wouldn't know that though unless we have a conversation. And I think having those conversations takes skill and patience and they're not, these aren't things that are generally taught in medical school, which is a huge disadvantage for all doctors and patients everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of reminds me of a, a conversation I had earlier this year. My mom's partner passed away. And when he was first diagnosed with, um, they found three cancerous tumors and they were gonna do chemo and radiation. And he just wasn't in good health. He had diabetes, he was overweight, and he'd had a number of different ailments throughout his life. And just even leading up to that, he was very depressed and just had kind of lost his zest for life. And so when he got that news, um, it was very difficult. And I remember saying to my mom, I said, this is going to be, this is going to be a struggle for him to go through all of this. And in the end, he may only end up getting maybe a month or two extended of his life. Like you need to ask these questions and then have the conversation with him of like, what does he want his final days to be? And, and try and express to him that like going through all of that could potentially be really tough on him. And, you know, God bless her. She did. And I was like, if you're not okay with having that conversation, like I'll, I'll have that conversation with him. Um, but she was able to, to have it with him and, um, he did end up deciding to do it, but he didn't even end up actually making it through the treatment. Like he just kind of yep. gave up on everything and yeah. you could just see it in him. Um, you know, but in the end, like I'm, I was just happy, like his suffering was over, like he said. Um, and everybody was at peace with the situation. I'd, I'd made sure to really try and have all those conversations, even like a, a few months prior to that, um, just cause I was worried. I started asking the questions of like, have you guys talked about things? And then even bringing it up with my mom. And I was actually pleasantly surprised that she had really thought about it. She was at peace with it. She knew what her wishes wanted to be. And it wasn't like this very, um, overwhelming experience, but I've watched other friends, you know, go through similar situations and they didn't talk about it. And it just makes it so much harder when there's all that emotion in the end involved. And so I thought that was really great when you were saying to open up the conversation now, like it's just, it's like a crisis plan, I think is what you'd said in one of your interviews about just planning ahead. Um, and I, I really liked that where I was just like, it doesn't, I mean, it's gonna happen regardless. We're all gonna die someday. So why not be prepared and 
you know, what, how did you say? And I think you said something about living greatly, like die greatly, live greatly or something like that. What did you say? Um, I think that part of living a good life means oh, dying a good, a good death. Yeah. Yes, and I think right. that that is, you know, something that we have to think about. It's not always something we can control. And that's always the, the thing I have to caution people about is we may have a plan in mind, but if something befalls us that, um, that we're not prepared for, then it might not turn out the way we want it at the very end of our lives. But thinking about it ahead of time and talking with family about what we would or wouldn't want in certain situations is probably the best assurance of having our wishes heard and followed. Um, and none of us knows what's coming. I think a lot of people imagine that they'll get a terrible diagnosis and have some time to say goodbye, but we don't know that for sure. Someone can be walking down the street and get run over by a car. That may not be what they had planned for, but I think part of living a good life also means knowing that death is around us, mm. that another day is not necessarily promised. So what does it mean to live a good life? Wow. This is, again, something that a lot of spiritual traditions really contend with, but even if we remove spirituality from the conversation, it's logical also to know, and we have endless examples of this in the news now, I mean, we always have, but maybe more so recently, that violence is all around us. Another day is not guaranteed. So what does it mean to take advantage of this day or this moment? And I think that's probably living a good life is the only thing we have available to us. And living in the moment, yeah, absolutely. Wow, that was very powerful. I have a I have a quick question actually that's a bit off topic if you don't mind. No um, So at, part of our job as as life coaches and and with Dana as career coaching and professional coaching, we get people who say if I only had the time I would do X Y Z. Now this memoir that you wrote, which is absolutely beautiful, um, that obviously took some time to write, and someone in your position obviously is very busy. Now, how did you find the time to actually sit down and write? Did you have to take time off or did, you know, because this is a lot of people have said they want to write a book and they just never get around to doing it. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So, yeah, you know, I was always a writer before I became a doctor many, many years. I would do it on my own. It was always the first thing that called to me. And I think, you know, I just kind of had to say to myself, no one is going to write your book for you you have to be the one to tell your story. And I think I've had to kind of be very goal oriented most of my life. And I think that was just a goal and a dream. And I knew if I didn't put the time in, it was not going to magically happen. Mm. And so I think, you know, I get very limited time off from the hospital, but I used my vacation time and went, I was very lucky to be accepted to writing residencies, which are basically beautiful places you can go where they feed you and house you. You're in the company of other creative people. And I just wrote and in on weekends. And when I would come home from work, I would try to stick to a schedule and write. It wasn't always possible to stick to a schedule and, and writing the book took me longer than I thought it would. But that's also because life happens and you have to give yourself some flexibility around that. But basically, I just kind of knew no one was going to do this for me. 
Um, so I just had to make the time. And I think we all have our ways of prioritizing what's important to us and just getting things done. And that was really what I had to do. Writing is not sexy or glamorous. It's really <laughs> hard. And, it and I think people don't understand that. And a lot of writing is rewriting. So you may write a draft and then you have to really go through and ask yourself, is this what I'm trying to say? What am I trying to say? And that's really hard work that required a certain peace and clarity of mind that is very hard for me to get when I'm seeing patients all day. Mm-hmm. But some days I just had to do it. Even if I wrote complete crap, at least I was writing. And I'm working on my second book now and that's, I'm doing the same thing. Even if it's complete crap, I still have to write it. There's no other way. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Have you decided what it's going to be about yet? And, or can you share anything about it? So right now, I probably won't share anything about it, but it is another memoir. Oh, and wonderful. It's related both to medicine and life. And it's a very different book than my first book. But, um, and, it, and writing it, it takes a different type. I'm writing it in a different style, which is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, it's a really, it's, it's a tough process at the beginning, especially when you're trying to figure out exactly what you want to say. So that takes a lot of time and creative energy. Well, I know we have to wrap up soon, um, but I have just another quick question, if you don't mind. We, what do you do for self-care considering you have such a kind of emotionally draining job, emotionally rewarding and draining at the same time, I think. How do you take care of yourself? I take care of myself by making sure that I set good boundaries at work and elsewhere so that I'm not overextending myself beyond my limits. I think knowing your limits is really important and trying to establish boundaries so that you don't overstretch yourself because then you'll be so depleted you can't go back and do anything for yourself or anyone else. Um, I find solace in yoga and my pets and my family. Writing can often be solace for me, but it's also hard work. So I wouldn't necessarily say that's self-care in some ways. (laughs) And I'm very lucky to have a great palliative care team that I work with. Um, And also just friends and loved ones in my life who are restorative to me. And I think really kind of, I I find a lot of solace and beauty in nature. I really do. Even though I live in Los Angeles, which is kind of, (laughs) it's hard to find (laughs) places that aren't, you know, a part of the concrete jungle. But even in our hospital, like right across the street, there's this little park and I'll sometimes go and walk around in the park in the middle of the day just to get out and be around greenery and be around trees that have been there for so, so long and have themselves been witness to so much change and coming and going. And I think just looking at a tree helps me to remember that you can weather a lot of storms and still stay standing. And that's important for my own self-care to remember that. Wow. It's interesting what you said about the trees. I find I love hiking and being out in nature. And sometimes I'll find myself just like putting my hand on a tree and just like closing my eyes and just being like, I don't know, for some reason it feels like there's like knowledge or something in the tree. So I love that you said that about the trees. Oh, yes. I think trees are unbelievable 
metaphors for a lot of things. How you stand tall, how you weather a storm, the roots you establish in the ground, the changing of the leaves, I think is really symbolic. I just think we can learn so much from them. Yeah. Well, as you say this, I'm staring at some trees, so that's just now I'm looking at them. And <laughs> I'm at I'm at home today. So, oh well, this has been absolutely such an honor. I'm I'm I've got goosebumps just listening to you. So thank you so much, oh. Dr. Perry, for taking the time. It's been just absolutely beautiful speaking with you. Yes, thank, thank you so you. much for having me. I'm really it was an honor, and I hope it was helpful to some of the listeners. Absolutely. Yes. Have a wonderful day. All right. You too. Thank All right. you. Take care. Thank you.